Someone recently asked what keeps me up at night. And my answer was simple, bureaucracy. Fragmented structures, Byzantine procedures, and endless red tape. Someone out to undermine the UN could not have come up with a better way to do it than by imposing some of the rules we have created ourselves. I even sometimes ask myself whether there was a conspiracy to make our rules exactly what they need to be for us not to be effective. One of the first things UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres did after taking office in 2017 was to launch an overhaul of the UN's aid system. The resolution you adopt today ushers in the most ambitious and comprehensive transformation of the UN development system in decades. The aims of reform are clear, to focus more on people and less on process, to become more nimble and effective, and to build a workplace of equality, diversity, and integrity. And he's even put back on the table issues that were long considered untouchable, like reform of the UN Security Council. The nations that came out on top more than seven decades ago have refused to contemplate the necessary reforms. The composition and voting rights in the United Nations Security Council or the boards of the Bretton Woods system are a case in point. So does the Secretary General's agenda create openings for reform of the multilateral system? And given the complicated politics of how the UN is run, can his vision, or really any reform agenda, realistically deliver? As the UN marks its 75th anniversary this year, we're asking if reform of multilateral agencies has a chance. In Washington, D.C., I'm Jeremy Kneindijk, Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development. And in Geneva, Switzerland, I'm Hiva Ali, Director of the New Humanitarian. We are your co-hosts for Rethinking Humanitarianism, a podcast series exploring the future of aid. Before we dive into today's episode, we want to share a few thoughts from listeners. Last episode, Tara Nathan of MasterCard argued that the UN should leave cash programming to the experts, as she put it, by leveraging digital infrastructure that already exists in the private sector. In response, Mark Lychenna, and apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, Mark, Uh, The director of Acacia Innovations, a social enterprise that delivers eco-friendly cooking and fuel solutions, contacted us from Kenya with this thought. I wonder if you see good examples where similar tech disruption has avoided domination by a few actors globally. I'm a big fan of digital cash, but like with ride sharing and social media platforms, it does seem ripe for monopolization and other things counter to localization and humanitarian values since it's easier to roll out cash programs at scale without engaging with local networks and to avoid local accountability to communities, even if cash gives an individual more choice. And so I wonder what lessons the aid sector can take on this from elsewhere. I think he makes a a really valid point if you look at what we've seen Google and Facebook do in terms of monopolizing um, the markets and and, uh, creating an unfair landscape for any any healthy competition. Um, But I also think, and Tara, alluded to this during the episode, that too often the the fear that the private sector doesn't abide by humanitarian values is used as an excuse not to engage with the private sector whatsoever. And I think that needs a bit more nuancing. Um, and, and just like uh, Google and Facebook, the private sector needs regulation, certainly, but it doesn't um, necessarily always lead to a worse outcome, I think, than the monopolization and lack of accountability that we currently see within the UN. Yeah. And I think I think Mark points to a very real risk. You know, we haven't seen monopolization of cash programming yet, 
because there are so many different actors doing it. Every NGO, every UN agency, it seems, has their own uh, attempt at a cash platform. But the donors are clearly pushing for more consolidation in the name of efficiency, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. But it does then raise the risk of what he's talking about here, of, of domination. So perhaps what we need to look towards is, is moving in the direction of social protection, which tends to be a government-run function, um, and looking at how humanitarian cash ultimately feeds into building the platform for that kind of government social protection network. We also heard from Sophie Tholstrup, policy coordinator at the Cash Learning Partnership, who agreed that cash programming and aid has failed to be transformative because it has grown on terms that suit humanitarian agencies. But she also had this to say. I'd argue that there's another bigger problem out there over who cash programs are designed for. And as long as we have competition between agencies over who gets to deliver cash and what it's for, we're going to keep designing programs which work well for humanitarian agencies, not programs which work for recipients. At CALP, we hear so many examples of this. For example, individuals receiving two identical mobile phones from different agencies and being told that they'll receive cash on each one, but that that cash is intended for a different purpose. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can incentivize program design based on what aid recipients need and prefer, rather than program design based on how humanitarian agencies prefer to work. So I think Sophie makes a really important point here. And there are so many of these really bonkers stories about competing cash programs that make no sense from an aid recipient point of view, but make a lot of sense from an aid provider point of view. And this is why, as I mentioned a moment ago, in response to Mark's point, there are donors pushing for greater consolidation of cash programming because this just doesn't make sense. I think we have to get towards a future where we are somewhat delinking the delivery of the cash from the mandates and you know, program priorities of the agencies that are providing it. And a few years ago, the big three UN agencies in OCHA all agreed to do this. They agreed to begin moving towards a common cash platform. But from what I understand, it's been a real struggle to put that into practice. I think the other point to take away from this is that it's not just cash that is being driven by the mandate of the agency rather than the needs of the people on the ground. And I think that points to a much um, broader rethink that is needed on how aid is delivered and on um, agency mandates. And it's one of the things we're going to talk about today. So we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the need for reform in the power dynamics of the humanitarian sector, and especially within the shape of UN structures. So we're spending this episode looking at how UN agencies are governed and whether so-called multilateral reform will ever be possible. So joining us today, we have two people with extensive backgrounds in multilateral diplomacy. We have senior UN official Fabrizio Hochschild Drummond of Chile who is the UN Undersecretary General and Special Advisor to the Secretary General on the UN 75th anniversary. That is a mouthful. But he is a longtime humanitarian and UN expert, and he previously led strategic coordination in the Executive Office of the Secretary General, trying to push more coherence across different portfolios like peacekeeping, political affairs, development, humanitarian, human rights, rule of law. There's a lot there. And it's not easy to keep it all together. So we're really happy to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Fabrizio. Thank you. It's great to be with you. We also have with us Ambassador Hisham Youssef, a career diplomat with the Egyptian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who's now a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Hisham previously led the humanitarian portfolio at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, 
and was the chief of staff to Arab League Secretary General Amr Musa. He also worked at the Egyptian mission to the UN in Geneva, where he had the great pleasure of dealing with thorny economic uh, and trade issues. Welcome to the podcast, Hashem. It's a pleasure to, to be with all of you. I should note that, um, lucky for us, they will both be speaking in their personal capacities. And- Before we dive into this you know, light and breezy topic of UN and multilateral reform, we wanted to ask both of you a question that we put to every guest on the program. So what is one strange quirk in the humanitarian sector that just makes absolutely no sense to you? Uh, Fabrizio, let's start with you. I would argue the gender and geographical composition of its leadership. Arguably, uh, the first international humanitarian entity was started 160 years ago with the with the Red Cross, the first UN envoy. Uh, then for the League of Nations was named about 100 years ago, uh, Nansen after, after the Versailles Treaty to look after people displaced and refugees. And yet, despite the many decades that have passed, despite that we're now in 2020, the, the leadership of humanitarian entities, international humanitarian entities, still tends to be uh, predominantly from Europe, uh, and from North uh, America. Um, and while I think it's come a long way in terms of gender balance, I think it still has some way to go. So it, it doesn't adequately reflect those it serves. And I think that, that dovetails nicely with something we're going to be talking about today, which is which voices count and whose perspectives are incorporated into these power structures. And interestingly, uh, Foreign Policy published a piece a while back looking at diversity and representation among senior levels of the UN and the humanitarian agency, OCHA, the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, fared the worst in, in that analysis. Hisham, curious to hear your quirk. I saw countries sending planes of uh, full of uh, tents uh, made out of cloth in areas that were facing uh, a monsoon time uh, and rainy seasons where they couldn't just use the tents or countries sending uh, plane loads of uh, blankets in areas that were over 50 degrees uh, uh, and, you know, extremely hot, and people just didn't need blankets. So it's the behavior of sometimes countries that want to appear that they were the first to provide assistance or take one step or another, and the, and the political connotations of some of these issues that are really sometimes odd rather than in in the system as a whole. I think those are both great segues into the topic that we want to explore with both of you today, which is what are some of those incentives and power structures that shape the way the system works and what the system chooses to deliver and how it chooses to deliver it? I think one of the main challenges when it comes to the governance of UN agencies is that they are each independently governed. And so there's a lot of push to have coherent solutions and a real push around um, a common approach. And yet the governance of each UN agency is very uh, siloed and independent. And that doesn't incentivize collaboration. It incentivizes competition. Um, And so when he came into his role, the UNSG really prioritized uh, a UN reform agenda aimed at addressing some of those challenges around um, the incentives, the competition and the governance. And I'd love to hear from you, Fabrizio, how much progress has been made and and I suppose also how much resistance has been faced along the way. 
As strange as it might sound, the UN, when the Secretary General came in, did not really have a proper cabinet-like structure. Uh, it, it, it had meetings, occasional meetings that were really for information exchange of senior managers. It had some sort of attempt at a policy formulation body that was relatively short-lived. But the Secretary General, and that was my role to, to implement his vision in that regard, put in place for the first time weekly meetings that brought together both the Secretariat and UN agencies. And UN agencies had always been kept at sort of arm length from the Secretariat, brought them all together in a room to discuss a very tight agenda around thematic issues and country-specific issues. And it brought the operational entities in the humanitarian field, together with the development agencies, together with the political actors, together with the human rights actors, to come up with a common strategy on Syria, or to come up with a common strategy on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And for, that was the first time, as surprising as this may sound to listeners, that there was that very formalized, weekly, disciplined um, structure that generated decisions that then became policy for all. And it was quite a bottom-up process. First of all, it was also the first time we brought in voices from the field. So in every one of those meetings, when country-specific issues were discussed, we had the, the UN leaders on the ground in the meeting as well. And for them to talk directly to the Secretary General was almost unheard of before. So they were in the room via video conference. The, the decisions were prepared by pre-meetings at a lower level. Then they went through a so-called deputies meeting, which I chaired. So by the time they came to the Secretary General, lots of voices had been listened to. But I think that formulation of a common vision sanctioned by the Secretary-General, endorsed by the Secretary-General, brought greater cohesion to the system. In terms of the constraints, different governance bodies are certainly a factor, fully agree. Uh, but the, the governance bodies are made up from the same member states. So when there's coherence within the member state representatives, it can work quite well. Sometimes different delegates speak with different voices, even if they represent the same member state. So that can lead to, to some difficulty. But there's also competition for funding. I mean, that is a real issue. Um, so people are fighting for visibility. They're fighting for impact. Um, and I think uh, the, the funding factor and the competitiveness around it um, can sometimes mitigate coherence. But I do have to say, I mean, I, I started in the humanitarian sector in the, in the mid-80s in the UN before any entity to coordinate humanitarian affairs. And I think the humanitarian sector in particular has come a very long way in terms of coordination. And I do think the humanitarian sector has been quite self-critical um, continuously in asking itself whether it's doing enough, what more it can do and how it can improve. And I think this podcast is, is an example of that. If I can be very frank, there are other parts of UN activity where I don't see the same constant process of, of self-examination and self-assessment uh, and the need for, for improvement. So I'm, I'm all for that self-appraisal, but let's not overdo the self 
flagellation. <laughs> yeah, I think overdoing the self-criticism is a core part of what it means to be a humanitarian. Hesham, I mean, I'm intrigued by this this uh, idea that Fabrizio has introduced that you know the the UN agencies are ultimately they're governed by member states. They're governed by the same sets of member states. And they can only be as cohesive as the member states that govern them. You've represented one of those member states. You've sat in some of these governance bodies. Do you think that fragmentation amongst the member states creates some of the problems? Is that something we can ever hope to get past? I think we have a number of, of issues that we need to, to agree on. Uh, we need to agree first, are we going to address uh, reform in the humanitarian system as a whole? Or are we, are we talking about an approach that will deal with it agency by agency. And, and this, this is a, a critical issue that will require a lot of work. And then we need to talk about the philosophy. The issue is an issue of shifting the power dynamics. So it's a, a question of power. While in many discussions that we have in the UN system, we're talking about narrow angle of reform about efficiency improvement, uh, you know, structural changes and things of that nature. And then there is even something that becomes more complicated. Are we going to address only the humanitarian situation? Or like we have done in our discussions in the World Humanitarian Summit, for example, talk about the nexus between humanitarian and other issues. So that complicates things even further. Are we going to talk about humanitarian and development, humanitarian and conflict, humanitarian and the environment, and so on? And then comes the issue of political will. Is there a political will for change and reform? And unfortunately, you know, Fabrizio was saying that we are always self-critical in the system and so on. But unfortunately, I didn't see political will. I didn't see political will neither in the member states and not even in the UN organizations that resisted calls coming for change from different quarters, whether it's from uh, someone uh, like me when I was representing the OIC at the time, or a number of developing countries, or local NGOs, or whatever it is. So they were saying, no, reform is a negative word. Um, let's not talk about reform. And I think also you and Heba at the time uh, listen to all kinds of remarks saying that the system is not broke, the system, the system is not broken, it is broke. And I personally took issue with that, with that statement. Uh, it may not be broken, it's not. It is functioning. And as a matter of fact, it's doing some good work in many aspects. But at the end of the day, the issue is not an issue of money. The issue is much, much deeper and includes something that was also mentioned by, by all of you in, this, in these few minutes, uh, those that we are supposed to serve. So, and in the context of the UN, who is Mr. or who is Mrs. Reform in, of the humanitarian system in the United Nations? No one. Who is responsible for the thinking about the reform of the system in the UN system? There is no one. Well, wouldn't wouldn't and we then, argue that it's the Secretary General who who is has well, made this the Secretary agenda. General had, no, the Secretary General has the whole system to worry about. He can't be focused on fixing the humanitarian system. And as a matter of fact, initially when he first first started, the the reform of the humanitarian system was wasn't wasn't one part of his reform agenda. When he started, his reform agenda included three items. Uh, one of them was uh, in relation to conflict resolution. 
The second was in relation to the sustainable development goals, and the third was in relation to uh, the functioning of the system. Uh, while I hoped at the outset that this would be one of the things that he would be focusing on. So, so I don't think that there is someone who's responsible for this issue at a high enough level to be able to, to, to achieve this object. We do not have a platform in the UN to discuss this issue. If I want to discuss the reform of the humanitarian system in the UN system, where would I go? You come to the new humanitarian. No... You'd, you'd write an op-ed. <laughs> no, but I think, but I think this, so this, I think, I think it's, a, it's a really, it's, a, it's a such an important point. I think it ties back to something Fabrizio was saying, which was uh, how unusual it was to have these meetings, these sort of uh, huddles that he was describing with the secretary general between the SG, the agency leaders and the field leaders. Um, that everyone is kind of getting pulled out of their own little kingdoms. And I, that's something we see a lot in the system is, um, as you say, we don't have one place where this all comes together. You have a piece of it come together here. You have another piece of it come together here. You have another piece of it come together here. And that does make it difficult. Certainly when I was previously at USAID, it was hard to have a single unified conversation on, on reform because there was no single unified conversation. There was no place to have that. But is there any scope then to have a, a more collective humanitarian governance? For both of you who've been in the trenches on this stuff, would that ever fly? I think in the current climate, which is one where resource constraints are likely to grow more acute due to the traditional supporters of humanitarian action inevitably having to direct much of their resources towards national post-COVID recovery plans. I think in that constraint, which is also one of growing need, we're seeing increased threats in terms of hunger and, and famine. In that context of resource constraints and growing needs, I think it will be very difficult to, to, to get a single governance structure. I think all will be doing their utmost to assert their relevance, their effectiveness. Um, and, and, and I think that pressure to show greater performance is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. There will, I think, be greater pressure to work better together. Um, and, and I must say, and I say this having worked in many emergencies, um, the, the system does tend to come better together in emergencies. As, as someone once said, we're much better at dealing with heart attacks than slow onset cancers. So, so where there's a real emergency, the system does come together in surprisingly good ways. When things are peaceful, we sort of bicker uh, around one another. I have to say, I mean, I agree with what a lot of Hesham said. I'm not sure I would frame it quite as, as, as negatively. I mean, the, the UN is a large amorphous system between member states, UN entities, other stakeholders. So, of course, entry points for anything are not really very clear, including reform. Arguably, OCHA would be the place to discuss broader humanitarian reform. Coming back to the Secretary General and responding to Hesham's point, you know, one of the big um, outcomes of the, of the World Humanitarian Conference was the call for more prevention. I mean, you know, that the humanitarian action is most successful where it's redundant and it's most redundant where you have political settlements of dispute. So that was there was a lot of emphasis on that. Hence, the secretary general's emphasis 
on prevention and peace and security reform, because nothing serves obviating the need for humanitarian support better than having them resolving conflict or, or preventing it uh, uh, at the outset. And the other area where there's been a lot of emphasis in the Humanitarian World Summit was on post-conflict recovery and making sure that the development system was better geared up to interface more effectively with the humanitarian sector. And that's also where the Secretary General has put a lot of emphasis. So I I would agree with Hesham that the Secretary General did not immediately focus um, on humanitarian as one of his main reform strands. But I would argue that um, humanitarian understood in the broader context of, um, of making itself redundant, both by preventing conflict at the outset and ensuring development in the aftermath, uh, has had a lot of emphasis, even though there's still uh, a long way to go. We need to get to a point where we stop looking at the world and and those who suffer from the biggest deficits in peace and security, the biggest deficits in respect for their human rights, the biggest deficits in access to development, looking at them through our respective um, goggles of our of our mandates, and we need to try to see the world and understand the world as they see it, and see their resources as well as their needs as they see it. A displaced person. Um, uh, camping out almost on the airstrip in Bangui um, does not think of uh, uh, her problems. Oh, these are my food problems. I go to WFP. These are my human rights problems. I go to OHCHR. These are my development problems. I call up UNDP. It's, it's It's a complicated interface of everything. And we need to get much more refined. I mean, we're not going to change the system. We're not going to get rid of mandates. But we have to um, underprivilege the mandates and overprivilege those who are serving and learn to think uh, and understand the world and their needs more from their viewpoint and then see how we can respectively contribute uh, to the sort of uh, solutions uh, they have building on their resources. I think that's another big weakness of the humanitarian sector, that we look at the whole world through a needs analysis uh, with a sort of underlying assumption there's nothing there before we come uh, rather than looking equally at resources. And I think that's where the humanitarians can learn a lot from development actors, as development actors can learn a lot from humanitarians in terms of speed and impact. So back in 2015, Hesham and I both took part in a conference in New York preparing for the World Humanitarian Summit, trying to generate some different ideas on how the system might change. And the the biggest vote-getter in that conference was to do a thorough and systematic review of UN agency mandates. Um, that a lot of people in that conference saw those mandates, just as you've just been describing, Fabrizio, as part of the uh, part of the problem, as an obstacle to the kind of coherent, people-centered approach that we wanted to achieve as a humanitarian sector. For all the reasons that you've just described, you know, ultimately that recommendation to do a fresh look at all the mandates went nowhere. Um, I was in the U.S. government at the time. We reviewed that. We decided uh, that it was not feasible and that reopening the mandates probably would leave us in a worse position than where we started, um, just given the state of world politics. So is the problem the mandates themselves? Is the problem how the member states approach 
the mandates is the problem, the implementation of the mandates. How should we think about that? Um, Hashem, you've, you've seen this from the member state side. You know, what's your perspective on, on how, we, how we understand that nexus between the mandates and how things are delivered on the ground? Of course, mandates can be improved. But I think we have followed also a situation whereby we had two of the biggest UN agencies in one of the major conflicts fighting with each other over who gets the highest say in one of these conflicts. And this is not a question of mandate. This was a question of a clash of personalities, uh, lack of, uh, you know, lack of firm leadership to bring these people together and tell them this is unacceptable. And this didn't happen. So, yes, mandates are problematic, but I think leadership is, is lacking, unfortunately, in all kinds of quarters, whether it's in member states, unfortunately, uh, or sometimes in, within these organizations that keep fighting for their narrow interests rather than looking at uh, what, is, what needs to be done from the perspective that we have been talking about f since the beginning, those that are affected by these crises and do not care whether this help comes from uh, uh, WFP or, uh, or uh, UNHCR or IOM or whatever it is, uh, you know, we, we're supposed to be saving lives. And this is supposed to be pr the priority. And the priority should be to get the response and the evaluation of those that we are supposed to serve. And this is one of the things that we're not doing. A final point in relation to the World Humanitarian Summit. In the World Humanitarian Summit, there were hundreds of ideas. Why? Because it was a good process for preparation, because it was multi-stakeholder. We had governments, we have NGOs, international, local, we had UN agencies, we have the private, had the private sector, we had every, everybody on board. So what happened with all the ideas that were generated in, in this summit? I know all the problems that faced the summit. I know why it didn't succeed. I know all these things. But then, okay, you shouldn't throw the baby with the bathwater. So what, what have we done? Only a few days ago, I went back to the, the website of the World Humanitarian Summit. It, it said that it was inactive as of February of this year. And it is only kept for research purposes. I think that's a pity. And that is a huge waste of an effort that was done by thousands and thousands of people to try to see how we can improve the system. And I think that this is extremely unfortunate. We should not have left this to just wither away. But isn't that then the perfect example of why multilateral reform is so difficult, even in a process that was not binding, that didn't try to touch on the big, difficult political questions? It had a moment in the sun, and then we moved on. So how do you sustain a kind of change process like that? I think the, the resistance came because it was a multi-stakeholder approach and member states felt that they were dealt with equally alongside NGOs mm. and others, and they wanted to, make, to take control. Mm. So they wanted a process that was similar to the process that is generally used by the United Nations, uh, like climate change, where you have the governments agree in Paris on what they want to do, where the governments agree on a human right, in a human rights summit on what they intend to do. Uh, and so on. In all the conferences of the UN, it was government-led. And they didn't like that it was not government-led in that case, and they decided that it should not 
be accepted. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the main reasons why it's failed. Not because it's not Biden. All the UN uh, outcomes of all the summits are not Biden. Even the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals, they are not Biden. But still, they carry an authority. Why? Because they are adopted by member states. In that case, uh, the UN tried to do something different. And unfortunately, they weren't able to persuade member states that this was the best way to approach this issue. And I think this is the main reason why we have not succeeded in the World Humanitarian Summit. And I think that gets to such an important point that goes back to the issue that Fabrizio was talking about earlier, which is who gets to define what success looks like in the system? Who gets to define what the system is set up to do? Um, you know, as you're saying, Hesham, that is traditionally that is member states. And when you try to go beyond that, as the, the World Humanitarian Summit did, when you try to go beyond that to hear from the voices of affected people, hear from communities and not just governments, there is sometimes a strong reaction from member state governments, a negative reaction to that. And I think that makes it difficult to then um, move structurally towards what Fabrizio was talking about, uh, a system that takes as its starting point the perspective of affected people. Because those those people and their perspectives don't have a place. They don't have a foothold in the system unless they have a government speaking for them. Um, and, and, you know, what I struggle with a lot is, is how much can we really hope to change if we can't get past that somehow? And I, I know, Fabrizio, within the UN 75 process, one of the things that you're doing is consultation, again, consultation with a lot of people around the world about what the UN system should do. How do you kind of reconcile that? How do you reconcile what you hear from populations versus what you hear from governments? And kind of how, how different is that sometimes? In terms of what we heard, um, you know, the Secretary General did feel, and, and Hesham alluded to this, you know, the, the international cooperation is stuck. We're in a strange situation of a surplus, in the words of the Secretary General, of, of global challenges and a deficit in international cooperation. So from inequality to climate change to the pandemic uh, to population movements, migration, uh, IDP numbers, we have so many problems that cannot be solved by any single government on its own that require international cooperation. Well, there's also a retreat from the mechanisms that were set up uh, to to handle such uh, challenges. Also because there's a perception they don't work very well. It's not just because of nationalism or isolationism. So against that backdrop, the Secretary General wanted to go back to we the peoples, the first three words of our charter, to people across the world, to hear what they saw as their priorities and fears and how what they wanted from international cooperation uh, and what their their demands of the UN were. And we, we did this on a, on a global scale. It's never been done before. We did it through multiple data streams, which I won't uh, bore you with. But basically, we heard from millions uh, across the world and cross-referenced our results with independent surveys. Um, and what we heard first is that the world is remarkably united. And that might seem uh, uh, like a trivial finding, except for if you sit here in New York and follow the GA and follow the Security Council, you'd never know it. Uh, and people, in terms of the visions for the future, in terms of what they want in their priorities post-COVID, in terms of their longer-term priorities, are saying much the same things across age groups, across regions, across income levels. Um, and those things won't surprise you. In the immediate term, it's better access to water and sanitation. It's better access to health care. It's better access to education. That is the most important priority. The next most important priority is greater solidarity. 
and adjustment of our economic model so that it's more inclusive and doesn't continue to boost inequality. And in terms of longer term priorities, it's climate change and then better res resolution of conflict, better respect of, of human rights and dealing with corruption. And I think what is most striking, those priorities you could argue are self-evident, is just how broadly they're shared. And people do want more international cooperation. I mean, there's often a narrative out there that we're either nationalists, we're either patriots or we're globalists. Uh, you know, the internationalism belongs to a certain liberal elite and 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 I don't think people see the world that way. Certainly not young people. They're intensely aware of the interconnectivity of the world that you cannot be a real patriot unless you also care about what's happening on your planet. Uh, you cannot uh, be a true nationalist unless you also worry about what's happening beyond your borders, because whether or we like it or not, we are very interconnected. And if we needed a horrible, painful reminder, we got it through, through, through COVID. So people are looking for more international cooperation, but they are not looking for more of the same. They want to see a UN that much better reflects the sort of multi-stakeholder nature of today, the, the sort of distribution of the levers of power today that is very different from uh, the early days of the UN, the 50s, but still our, our structures uh, are more reconciled with, with where those who had their hands on the levers of power uh, 50 years ago than the realities of today. So they want to see a more inclusive UN. They want to see a UN with much more voices of civil society, with much more voices of youth, with much more voices too of business. Um, and, and the Secretary General will, will be working very much in that direction. And there are many efforts in that direction. But as Hesham said, and as Jeremy, you also emphasized, that is um, not everybody agrees to that. So uh, we'll see how far we get. But I, but I do think COVID um, is an opportunity. And I think if we cannot undertake a reset now, if we can't upgrade and reimagine international cooperation now across the board, we will be missing uh, uh, the, perhaps the last historic opportunity and the consequences will be grave. So how, <laughs> this is going to be just another simple question, how do you do that? Because if... Um, even on the the more simple, I guess you could argue, question of how UN agencies are governed and run, where member states have the full power, where, where member states are frustrated by the way UN agencies are run and have the full power to change it because they run the governance boards and still don't, uh, how on earth could they ever agree to the kinds of things you've talked about around greater civil society voices or as you alluded to, I think, just there, and the Secretary General has even dared to say the need for uh, reform of representation on the Security Council, even the stuff where member states have, have um, full control and probably aligned interests, we're not able to see reform on. How, how could we ever see reform on the trickier stuff? How do you corral member states around a reform agenda? I think there's plenty of grounds um, for 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 seeing things rather rather bleakly. But on the other hand, you know, I if you'd asked me 10 years ago, could something like the SGGs come into being, I would have said no. I mean, the, the, the member states will never get their act together and be able to agree on something like the 2030 agenda, an agenda that is that is about development, but also talks about behavior in the global north, 
that talks about the need for sustainable consumption practices, a development agenda that that puts stress not just on the environment, but on growing inequalities across the board, a, a development agenda that includes stuff about good governance. You must be crazy, but it happened. Now, of course, the test is in the implementation, but the implementation gets a little easier when you have a framework that has a certain degree of authority. The Paris Climate Accords, you know, the, the, the recent marking of the fifth anniversary. I mean, again, I think most people would have been very skeptical that the Paris Climate Accords could ever have happened. They did happen. Um, of course, we have not gone far enough in their implementation, but they represent something to build on. So I, I think there is, and I've spent the last year talking about this intensely with member states and other stakeholders, I think there's a real common recognition of that if we don't renew now, we're, we're lost. Um, and, and that's reflected in the UN 75 declaration where there is a common uh, vision set out. And that common vision has a paragraph on including more youth in decision-making uh, processes. Um, it has a paragraph on expanding the reach of the of the UN to deal with digital issues. Um, it it reiterates, and this was, you know, pre uh, some elections. It reiterates the importance of the Paris Climate Accord. So that um, the twelve priorities set out in that declaration. Again, I don't think a year ago anybody thought member states would come together around. So you know, I. I think there are certain areas like Security Council reform that are just not going to happen. Uh, but I do think there are other areas where where progress um, is possible. And I do think um, part of it will be making the UN more inclusive. Because quite frankly, uh, and the Secretary General has said this, if we don't grow more inclusive, uh, we will rapidly um, become irrelevant. And so, Hesham, from, you, know, you have been in these rooms many times as a member state representative. Um, what does it take to to deliver these kinds of changes? Um, how how feasible is it? Um, and are you you know when you and I talked about a year ago um, about the state of the humanitarian sector, you were you were quite pessimistic at that point about the prospects for deeper change, at least in the current political environment. I'm curious how you're feeling today. So, do you think I was right a year ago? <laughs> um, I think we've seen a, a mix on COVID. I think we have seen. You know, this mixture of solidarity in some corners and a lot of nationalism in other corners. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to what for, something Fabrizio said, I think that kind of how we handle the rest of this pandemic over the next couple of years is going to have an enduring impact potentially on how the world does crisis response well into the future. I'll, I'll I, give a more critical answer, Hisham. Yeah. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> um, I think the the opportunity that COVID presented for dramatic change within the UN system mm. has not been taken up. If you look at all the areas in which COVID could have been transformative, for instance, because of the pressure on budgets moving away from the business model of kind of just waiting for government handouts um, towards UN agencies, moving away from the centrality of the humanitarian system in its own ethos and recognizing how many other players actually are, are much more important um, in, in humanitarian response, uh, moving towards agencies that are much more agile 
and can adapt in a situation like COVID, uh, localization, et cetera. If there was ever a crisis that should have forced these changes, it was COVID and, and they didn't happen. And that's even within the realm of the UN agencies leaving aside all of the politics around member states. So I don't think we've seen the evidence for you to be much more optimistic today than you were a year ago, but let's hear from you. Yes, I agree with you. I, I didn't see evidence uh, to indicate that things would be much more serious because it requires leadership, it requires political will, and it requires champions. And we've seen some of that, as a matter of fact, in the preparation for the World Humanitarian Summit. Despite all our misgivings about the grand bargain, where is it now? It's dead. And this is sad. For example, they decided that 25% uh, of humanitarian assistance would go to uh, local NGOs by 2020. Now we are in 2020. Do we have political leadership, either in member states or at, in the UN governing uh, institutions regarding uh, humanitarian assistance, those who are really willing to work hard on fundamental reform, I think not. And I think that, you know, we, we keep always saying, talking about the, the glass half full message that, you know, things are not that bad, there are some improvements and so on. But is there willingness to, to do something fundamental? Pan the pandemic, I think, is important and crucial. And we will see how countries, um, you know, behave in the, in the next few years. Because in 2021, you will have 150 million people more pushed into extreme poverty. In 2021, you will have $25 billion less in official development assistance. This requires us to have new thinking. Why? Because there is no going back to normal. So it's no going back to the pre-COVID area. So in the context of this fundamental change that faced the world, how are we going to deal with some of these difficulties? Now we're still benefiting from the period where the government handouts and stimulus packages are having an effect. But this will no longer be possible for an extended period of time. So what will happen next that would be up to how governments would deal with these issues and how international organizations would deal with these issues in the years to come. But so if you're suggesting that there's no leadership, there's no political will, et cetera, should, shouldn't we just abandon this business of multilateral reform? Of course not. But where, we, we how have, does it happen? I haven't yet heard how this actually no. ever comes to be. Well, well we have to prepare. And we have to provide ideas. Did you stop working because, because there is no political will? No. Will I stop working? Will Jeremy stop working? Will Fabrizio stop working because he doesn't see polit enough political will? No. We will continue to try. But does this mean that we will succeed? The possibility of success, in my view, is not that high because there is, you know, the engagement from, from the different stakeholders and the different players are not up to the standard that would allow us to succeed. Look, I, I, um, I have many dark nights where, where my thinking is very similar uh, to, to Hesham's. Um, so, so, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I don't want to contradict because I think there is um, a, an issue there. Having said that, 
I'm not entirely convinced. I I see Filippo Grandi struggling with how he can turn around UNHCR and make it more effective through decentralization, how it can expand what it's doing and what it hesitated for decades on doing with internally displaced persons. I see new resolve and improvement there. I see Henrietta Four and UNICEF putting much greater emphasis on what was a neglected uh, population of of young people. I mean, of 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 you know, I mean, teenagers um, and and people who are just beyond the the formal definition uh, of children. I see her tra- looking at the digital divide, looking at connectivity um, for schools. So I mean, really trying to understand the new world and how that means. I see David Beasley. <laughs> bringing a completely different spirit um, to to the World Food Programme. Just not accepting that there should be a funding de- deficit, just not accepting that, that famine uh, should be allowed uh, to happen and talking to leaders I- in that spirit. So I'm not, and I see my own Secretary General, who is my boss, but I'm, but I'm not saying that just for this reason. I see him very earnestly trying to make the system work around the problems of those who need the system most and not just impose their their respective vision and respective institutional interests or or, or that of, of, of a minority of member states on them. So I think there is leadership. Having said that, what does it take to change? I mean, I think it takes a crisis to change. I think every big change, every big improvement has always happened against the backdrop of a, of, of a crisis. The first big wave of humanitarian reform uh, happened against the backdrop of the response to the humanitarian needs of the uh, set off by the first Gulf War in the uh, early 90s and the very lamentable response of the humanitarian um, community. So so we have a crisis now and we need to make uh, the most of it. And I think there will be very serious rethinking, especially on the public um, um, health side. And I think we will see um, uh, ambition. I would also argue that, you know, that this old idea um, that basically change happens by strong leaders. Um, and it's usually a question of, of, of a few and strong men, and it usually is men, coming together in a room and agreeing on what should be done. I think that's slightly outmoded. And if I think of change... Usually white men, I might add, as well. Yeah, yeah. If, but I mean, I think, you know, that's how the UN came into being. It was... Roosevelt, Churchill, uh, the leader of uh, the, the foreign secretaries of of China and USSR who who came together in 1942 January in in Washington and decided there should be a model um for 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 a post-war peace which in fact was an incredible exercise of vision and foresight they at the height of the crisis when half of them didn't know if they were going to win or lose the war were worrying about succeeding generations and what needed to be done to secure peace and progress with them. I think that sort of long-term vision is is sorely lacking today. But having said that, um, I think the way change happens today is by movements. I mean, if if it's if if we do something about climate change, um, you know, as much as I would like to think the leadership of the Secretary General is critical, I have to acknowledge that Fridays for the future is probably more critical. Um, if we see something um, against exclusion and, and racism, I'm sure it will have to do with one or two or three extraordinary individuals, but I suspect it will have much more to do with the sort of mobilization we've seen. So if you ask how change happens, 
I think it's a crisis without a recognition that the system is broken. It's very difficult to bring about change. And secondly, you need this, I think, ever more. You do need leadership. I don't want to discount that. But you also need this groundswell uh, of, of, um, of opinion um, the change is now urgent. Fabrizio, I agree with many of the things you said, but my problem is that this is not enough to address the magnitude of the problem. I agree, there are improvements and there are steps that are being taken. I'm not denying that there are steps and there are efforts by Filippo Grande or by, by and all those that you mentioned. Of course they are working and they're working hard. My problem is that this is not good enough for the kind of challenges and magnitude of the problems that the world is facing today. That's all what I'm saying. I wish I, wish I could disagree with you, but I think Napoleon said uh, leaders are, are managers of hope. So um, okay. I, I, I think we have to beware of self-fulfilling prophecies. If we're going to fall on hope, yes, we have seen past reforms emerge out of crises, but they've been largely technical reforms. They haven't been reforms of power and of structure. And multilateral reform is all about power and structure. And yes, um, you know, today the world is is um, inspired by these movements, but those movements are not in power either. And that power remains in the hands of, of states which are going to be very reluctant to give it up. And so if um, we always ask our... our uh, guests on the show this question, and maybe it's the only way to answer this challenge of how you actually um, make this kind of change happen when it does touch on power. If you had a magic wand and you could introduce any multi-million dollar idea that would help address some of these challenges, the most radical or unimaginable idea out there, what would it be? I, I would look at the whole issue of how we how we understand what's going on in any given humanitarian situation. And I would make obligatory a resource assessment next to any needs uh, assessment. And I would evaluate programs on the basis of their ability to build on those resources as opposed to ignoring them and thus often de facto uh, undermining them. Resources meaning in this case, the capacity that already exists on the ground. Yes, the capacities. I mean, what people are doing for themselves, what, how communities are helping themselves, how what what local support structures exist, be they state or be they non-state. Um, I would make uh, a local... Uh, language training obligatory for humanitarian workers. I would constitute diverse groups of local leaders who would do some sort of regular uh, performance evaluation of the, the humanitarian response. I would systematically have polling instruments of the type we did globally um, to assess response, both among key stakeholders, but also among uh, beneficiaries or survivors or victims, whatever um, we we wish uh, to call them. And I would put a premium um, on, um, and this is particularly controversial among humanitarians, on cooperation um, and mutual coherence and mutual support between political, humanitarian, human rights um, and, and development actors to ensure that problems are looked at uh, not through uh, the narrow confines of mandate, 
um, but um, through um, uh, 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 the real needs in a in a joined up and and, and cohesive uh, manner. Hesham, how about you? If you had a magic wand, what would you want to change? Three things. Uh, the first one is building on what you were just saying about the affected communities. Uh, to have a more robust system to get the feedback of affected communities as to what needs to be done and how and so on. And I think I think this is still lacking to a great degree. And I think the second the second is to see how the world can empower these local local communities to be able to respond to crises uh, that hit home on their own. Whether you call it resilience, uh, call it localization, call it whatever you wish. But people have to be strengthened to be able to deal with the problems on the road. And in relation to the humanitarian system, I think I think we need to follow up on hundreds and hundreds of ideas that were presented in the World Humanitarian Summit. You know, including including ideas that I thought were not that controversial. You know, that they were difficult, but but they could be done. We were discussing, for example, the need for having a coordinated system for needs assessment. That you can't have needs assessment done by every single organization on its own. I know now that there are some organizations that are getting together to have, uh, you know, collaborated forms of needs assessment. We need to do more of that. Uh, And for them to to feel that working together is a win-win game rather than uh, a zero-sum game. Which is currently the case, whether it's on uh, on on mandate or on on role or on uh, fighting each other for money as uh, or compete for for financial resources as we see happening uh, amongst different institutions. So we have a long way to go, but I think I hope that uh, that the the pandemic would make us much more serious uh, in dealing with the challenges that are still yet to come. I mean, Hesham, I, I, um, I felt for the sake of the podcast, I had to disagree with you sometimes. <laughs> I, I have no problem whatsoever. <laughs> That's what makes it interesting. You're, say it, Fabrizio, you're just as pessimistic in the end, aren't you? Well, yeah, but what is it? Uh, what does Gramsci say? The, the pessimism of the, of the mind, the optimism of the will or something? I mean, I... <laughs> Um, anyway, but it, and Jeremy, good to, to see you. Heba, wonderful to see you again. And, and thank you for inviting us. And um, stay safe. Thank you both very Thanks much. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you have thoughts on whether multilateral reform is possible, tweet your comments or questions to us via at CGDev and at New Humanitarian with the hashtag RethinkingHumanitarianism. Or send a voice recording to rhpodcast at thenewhumanitarian.org. In our next episode, we'll be looking at increasing calls to decolonize aid agencies. What does decolonization even mean? What dilemmas does it pose? And how do you go about doing it? The Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast series is hosted on the New Humanitarian's podcast channel. Search for The New Humanitarian via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review to help others find it. For more, check out thenewhumanitarian.org and cgdev.org. And thank you for listening to the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast. See you again soon.